Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. And therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, may we not only be hearers, but may we be getters of what is said. May we be doers of Your eternal holy, infallible, inerrant Word through the Apostle Peter this morning. So help me use the gift of teaching for the glory of Your name and for the encouraging of Your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This passage this morning confronts every member of this church, every attender of this church, any of us who claim to be Christians with this question. How are you doing in loving others in the body of Christ? How are you doing with your love in the context of hospitality? Opening up yourself, your life, your home in real human-to-human relationships. How are you doing with the gift or gifts that God has given to you for the purpose of dispensing them for the welfare of others in the body of Christ? It confronts us with, on Sunday morning, Do you merely, and you should come to feast. You should come to eat. You should come hungry. You should say, I want to get, yes. But is it only that that you come for? Or is there a part of you that also comes and say, and God, would you use me? Would you use this gift or that gift to bless, encourage another Whether you go 
to home groups or this Bible study or that Bible study or that prayer meeting in the life of the local church? Do you make those decisions based only on felt needs for you? Or based upon God, you might use me. Even I don't feel like it today. But it's not just about me. My life there might be used by the Spirit to encourage the faith of another. Those are the questions that I want to just hang mercifully upon us as we just work our way through this text and see the progression of the Holy Spirit's thought, of Peter's thought to us. We start this morning in the middle of verse 7. See where it begins with the word, Therefore, because we have dealt already with the first clause a few weeks back, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, There's the context. He gives this massive theological statement, which let me just sum up that sermon. Because of the end times, Christian, who have come to embrace and to love Jesus, it means life will be filled with trials, with pain. They're going through it right now, and part of your problem is you. It's called our flesh in the New Testament. That's why we saw Jesus in the context of the last things saying, Therefore, pray that you not be bowled over and taken captive by your lust in the midst of this. Okay, here we now. There it is. Life's dangerous. He picks up. Therefore, because of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, he leads off with two verbs, two imperatives, two commands to us. He says, so be, in the context of what? The end of all things is near. This big, huge, gospel, theological goal of Christ's work on the cross for you. It's for sure. It's coming. Therefore, be clear-headed. Be sober in your thinking, in your mind, for the purpose of your prayer life. For the purpose of making us desperate to go to God and get filled for the sake of your prayers. The first verb, ESV translates it, be self-controlled. The the word, it, it means be sane. Think about life, reality, situations correctly, maturely. The NIV translates the word, be clear-minded. The New King James translates it, be, in, in, in your mind here, serious. The New American translates it, be of sound judgment. So, in the context, here he is. He, he says, the second coming... The end of all things, it's a reality. It will come. 
Therefore, think soberly, clearly. Don't be intoxicated with the world, with triviality that numbs the senses of the reality of the gospel and that the end of all things is near. The second word translated be sober-minded in the ESV is translated sober spirit in the New American or be watchful in the King James Version. Together, he's saying essentially it has something to do with the way we think, contemplate, where our heart, our mind, our affections are. He's saying be self-controlled, clear-headed, sane, think correctly, maturely when it comes to Reality. The reality of the Gospel and of the coming eschaton that Jesus bought for you. Pause. Now, why? All for the purpose of your prayers. That's the flow. He's saying... What you think about Jesus, how you understand the Bible, the Gospel, your sobriety to that reality has to do with your walk with the Lord. To to be alert to to the end times, which means the danger that is all around you, that's in you, it's your own flesh, it's the world, it's sin. He says, your sobriety to that reality every day is the key to an effective prayer life. You, I, you can well, we're not having a home group this week, but the next you can bring it up, bring it up after, because I mean this, and we can think about it logically if this is not true. The reason you or I don't pray much, and that's all of us, we might pray much for three weeks, and there's a reason why, and we might not for another three weeks. Okay, So in those times, the reason we don't commune with God intensely for our soul's sake very much is because at those moments we are more intoxicated with worldliness. We're not sober we're not sobered up by the word of God we are at those moments we're deceived about the danger that is all around us to our souls unless the truth of the gospel is constantly penetrating our heart and our affections and shining the light on the reality of our sin that no one else even sees, the reality of the danger all around us, we will not sense. We'll be intoxicated. Which is to kill the senses. It's why we become drunks in this world. Life is too painful. Numb it. And we won't sense the actual desperateness of our soul and thus we won't pray or commune with God much. It's we saying be sober minded. He's almost flipping it around. Okay. Because the word sober and the way he means it 
it's he's, the way he's taking it and the way he's going to use it, it has to do with what you're thinking about. Alcohol. To get drunk is to be not sober. Okay. So you drink and you become non-sober. But he means it this way. Here's the reality. We are desperate to drink the drink that sobers us. Because this is how we get drunk in this context. You wake up and you breathe the air and you do life and it is intoxicating. And we're desperate to take the drink of the Word of God to sober us up. That is the flow of what Peter's saying. Just look at your text. He gives the Word of God. He gives a theological truth. The end of all things is at hand. Conclusion. Therefore, think, drink about that. Meditate on that. Become sobered up with that for the sake of your prayers. Listen to how the psalmist says it. In Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You wake up, and that's what you do. You're drunk with the world. And you don't even know how sinful and hard-hearted your heart is. Verse 2, But, this is the blessed man, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. That one, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all He does, He prospers. So, we see the Word of God and Holy Scripture and prayer are always connected. If we try to disconnect them, they both die. The Bible, the Gospel, the truth, God's Word, and all the forms in which it comes to us gives us the true picture of God. And this is a key. And of you. It gives us the true picture of the reality of us as sinners who are being saved and of the beauty of the Savior. And that is what foments and inspires delight in Him. His delight is in the Word, the Law. The Word produces prayer by making us sobered up to the truth of how desperate I am. God help my hard-heartedness today. My self-centeredness today. That's what he means when he begins the psalm. Blessed is the man. We, we, we so religionize the word, but blessed means happy, contented, fulfilled. Is, is this Man, where's the happiness rooted? In verse 2. But his delight is in the law 
of the Lord and on His law, on His word, He meditates day and night. So as believers, we feed upon the truth, upon the word of God, delight grows. And as delight grows, our desire to pursue God in prayer grows. That's the process here in Psalm 2. Feed on the Word. Blessed and happy are you because you delight in God who spoke. Okay. And it is what Peter essentially is saying. Meditate on the truth. This is just one example. We can put all kinds of other theological examples. Meditate upon the truth of the second coming, which you can't disconnect from the cross, which you can't disconnect from your sin, which you can't disconnect from, go on and on. How did I become a believer? Oh, I've been born again. You, you meditate. And you say, Wait, I, who's I? Oh, I don't deserve any of this. The, the Word of God starts to work this way. He says, therefore, think about, be sobered up, meditate upon the end of all things is at hand for the sake of your This is really easy to say because I think it is so clear right here. Now, to live it is something else. That's what he's saying. The key every day to our life is go vertical. First. This is the flow of Peter's. We're going to move and look at the rest of the text. Don't miss it. Therefore, be desperate to become sober by drinking the Word, by meditating upon the truth, being sober in your thinking for the sake of your communion with God. There's the vertical. It's what Peter's saying. It's what Psalm 1 says. And what does Psalm 1 say comes out of that? Then, he's like a tree. That person bears fruit horizontal. And that's exactly where Peter now goes. Vertical! Don't ever discount this. And don't ever think you do this horizontal for long without God, you're with me. Vertical! Because the next thing he now says, verse 8, above all, for the sake of your prayers, you're doing it, you're sober-minded, and now, Christian, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So remember their context. Persecution is is rising, the trials of life can be very stressful and painful and can bring, believe it or not, I don't know, you may never experience it, tension in relationships, family and the church family and everywhere else in life, which Peter knows this means as the church, in local churches, in the community, in the fellowship of the saints, we are desperate to focus on loving, real, selfless 
felt and acted love. See, and you put this whole thing together, vertical, horizontal. The warning that Peter is given to Joe, put your name in there, is when we find our love, our concern, our care for others in the body of Christ that the Lord has put us around at any given time, when that love is just waning and shrinking, it's a sign. Watch out where your heart is. Vertically. Toward the Lord. It's a sign as they press in to God to find real. Because watch the word he uses here. He didn't just say love. He says earnestly love. Fervently love. That's not merely a begrudging act. And it's so clear in Peter, that's the Holy Spirit's mind. Because if you flip back a page to chapter 1, remember the connection between chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your... Here's the word. Here's the vertical. Here's the Word of God. By what? By your obedience to the truth. Watch what it produced. For a sincere brotherly love. Now here's the command. Love one another. says it again. Fervently or earnestly from a pure heart. So it's grounded in a word and he just grounds it again. Love one another from a pure heart. Why? Because you have been born again. Don't miss it. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. There it is again. The vertical. The Word of God. By the Holy Spirit in our hearts, causing our hearts to gravitate toward and be changed by it, is the fountain or ability for any genuine biblical horizontal love. Think about this. Why is it in Peter? Here's the kind of think back. First century, he's writing to all hundreds of churches in, in, in different cities over all these five provinces, persecution, and we've seen tensions in husbands and wives and with society, and what do you do? And I've been ostracized as a Jewish Christian from the synagogue. All these pressures in life, and you get together, and life just, you know, it's always has been, nothing's really changed, happens to them. To us. So, so why is he so concerned to say, above all, earnestly love? His answer is right there. Verse 8. Because, since, that's what since means here. Because, love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying because this love is able to quickly forgive. Don't make a big deal about that. Don't get bitter over that. Don't get so easily offended with one another. 
Biblical love in this text that flows out of relationship with Christ by meditating on the Word and thus for the sake of your prayer life, the more that grows, the more it's eager to forgive. Remember Jesus' parable? Kingdom of God is like someone who's been forgiven a million dollar debt. Scot free, not gonna throw you in prison, not gonna sue you. <laughs> and then he says, and this one guy went away, and someone owed him seventy five cents. And he grabbed him by the neck, had him thrown in jail until he paid it back. He's saying, Believer, if we're true, we can't be doing that. Because <laughs> then you, you don't understand you. And you don't understand the gospel. And you don't understand what you deserved. And you don't understand how you have been forgiven. He says, this vertical love overflowing horizontally, do it because that is what covers all the sins that you Christians will (laughs) commit against each other. Welcome to life. There is no other church on this earth on this side of the second coming now look at the connection between verses 8 and 9 where he says now he connects this loving others and covers sin with hospitality as as one specific example of love he says above all verse 8 keep loving one another Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay, hospitality means you open up your homes, your your life, be a person who's willing to, to love others and serve others in a hospitable way and open your life kind of way in the first century and it's needed in today's churches all over the world and it's needed at this church see back then they would do what we do they would rent at times for particular things but not every Sunday morning would they rent buildings they didn't have churches the idea of having a property and a building as your local church that these these communities own didn't happen for like another 150 to 200 years later homes. Whose homes? The believer's homes is where in this city you had, I don't know, how many people is how many churches and elders over there and where teaching was going on in people's living rooms and it becomes hard. He says, be hospitable for the gospel for love's sake. It's just like it's needed today. Home groups, and Bible studies, and fellowship time, and hanging out time. The New Testament assumes the importance of body life. I, I was asked one time by, by one of the kids in the church, hey, if we had our own building, would we still do home group in homes as opposed to church? My answer, yes, we would. We would have opportunities to do other teaching kind of things, which would be nice and make it easier for a public setting. But the idea of home groups and what we want to create in the body of Christ, it's just so much better in people's living rooms. Knowing it's not always easy. 
Knowing it means got to clean the house. Knowing you're tempted to grumble. That's what he says. Be hospitable. Now, without grumbling. Isn't it nice to know that the Holy Spirit and Peter are real? <laughs> to know he's got to put in without grumbling. So he's saying love that may express itself this way. Okay, He's saying love, desire, be happy to be hospitable. That's his point. Open your living room, your bathroom, your refrigerator, couches, your yard, without grumbling. Because it takes time. It can be inconvenient. It puts more stress on life. And Peter just has an idea of how important church is compared to a lot of rest of life. So he says, do it without grumbling. So verse 8, get the flow. Love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. See, loving this way through hospitality enables the life of the local church. Get it? In spite of our sins. In spite of broken, undone Christians. Love each other, he says. Care for each other instead of pointing out each other's shortcomings so easily all the time. Love, in a sense, cover them. Because love does that. Then verse 9 says, so don't grumble, don't complain. Cover, don't complain. Cover is you're getting, this is hard, I've got to do it again. It means housework. It also means, in this context, because love does cover a multitude of sins, as you're being hospitable, cover the sins of people who may take part of your hospitality, hospitality whom you think don't deserve. Because of their sin, your hospitality. Because every saint, every miraculously changed sinner on earth right now, been born again, they're placed into Christ mystically and in local communities physically. Because of the reality of our sin nature, which still remains with us, we all will always have reasons to murmur, grumble. Peter does have the the word there in the wilderness of the children of Israel murmur, 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 grumble, 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 and this ain't going right, and murmur, 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 murmur. It's sin. We can always find reasons to murmur. But the essence of Christianity, the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is loving other screwed up people. Loving other sinners like you. Other broken, undone people who may harm you. Unwittingly, and at times, deliberately. 
Love looks to the good of the other. And it doesn't take itself so blasted seriously. So it covers the sin of others. Now, let me just make a note. Peter is not saying here, and I am not advocating, be plastic. Don't be real. Just sweep everything under the rug and never have conversations with a sinning brother or sister or even our perceived difficulties in relationship. That is not his point here. To go live in a plastic shell of secrecy where you never share your heart or your feelings or that really hurt me. This is how I done it. What did you mean? He's not saying that. See, with plain church like that, real Christianity, real sanctification of body is not going to be happening much. To just play church and to not take the risk of opening your heart, because the risk is this, you will get hurt. To not do that, texts like Hebrews 3, starting with verse 12, Take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, falling away from the living God, but encourage one another. How are you going to do that when you don't let yourself be known and you don't care to know another? It's not going to be happening. Peter's not saying don't at times go and say, when you said that, I'm not sure how to take it. Did, did, I could take it this way, meaning you actually meant to stab a knife in me. Did, did you mean that? Or, and you realize, I didn't mean that at all. So he doesn't mean don't do that. It is amazing if true communication happens with husband and wife and kids and parents and in the workplace with bosses or fellow employees or in the church. It is amazing how much of life's pain is based on nothing in reality. But twisted perceived, they meant that. He meant that. And they don't mean that at all. Which communication would work out. His point is, no, it is assuming be real. Love means being real. Caring for real people. Real feelings. Who are you? Tell me about you. You might be able to minister to them even better now. We'll see in a minute. With your gifts. His point is, don't be so easily offended. Love covers a multitude of sins. So when you've done what you think you need to do at times with each other in the body of Christ and talk over stuff, okay, done that? And, and, and it still didn't work out the way you wanted? He says, let it go. Get that done. Cover it. Don't carry the bitterness or something like that. Okay. And now, in verse 10, he goes on and he pushes this to this. Believer, Love each other by serving your spiritual gifts to each other. Now, see, literally, 
in the Greek, you can pitch not the words, but the structures like this. If you're at home, you're making this, you're, you know, the, the meal you make the best, and it's delicious, and you're hospitable, and you got people over, and, and you're finally taken out of the oven, and it's nourishing, and it tastes good, and you take it and you serve others food. This is a structure here. Love one another by taking, serving your gift. To the other. Quote, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, manifold grace. So notice, he says here, each Christian, each person, has received a gift. At least one. That's the word charisma. Not a select few, but each one. Let me just... Gifts. This, This is what I think they are. Any talent, abilities, that you have, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose and goal of encouraging another believer in faith towards Jesus. Now, let me just slow down and say, outside of here now, in the New Testament, there are four lists other than this. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, Paul writes... And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each person exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay. Second list, second first Corinthians chapter twelve, verses seven to eleven. But to each One is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healings by the one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles. And to another prophecy. And to another the distinguishing of spirits. To Another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He, the Spirit, wills. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, 
Various kinds of tongues. And fourth, Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Okay. Now, all these lists that we just have in the New Testament, they're different. There is no one gift that is in all those lists. And no list has, of course, therefore, all the gifts. Because that's not the point, I think, in the New Testament. The, the New Testament, in, in naming some of these gifts, is not at all exhaustive. There are nuances even to every one of those gifts because there is no human being that is like another human being. We're unique. You can take with one word, like a gift of teaching, and, and say, look at it, they're all, they're all cookie-cutter teachers. And you know that's not true. Some just don't do it for you. I hope I'm not one. <laughs> And others, and there's a stronger gift and a better team. That's right. Okay. And that goes with every thing. So it, the point is that it's not exhaustive because the, the, the variety of human beings whom Jesus has saved is just manifold. And I think that's why Peter says, listen to how he says it, dish out Serve the gift to each other as good stewards of God's varied, manifold, that's what it means, many-faceted grace. God has grace He wants to give to that one, that one, those 20 people, all these people right here, this person right there. He wants to do that now. And He wants to do it through this person and that person and that person. And His grace is many-faceted coming through many, many differing kinds of people. And so He says, do this as good stewards. And see, a steward was a slave in this culture. It's a slave culture, Roman society. And he was the one who basically had charge of everything and for the master. He, he took care of all the finances, all the money, paid all the bills, gave all the, the, the paychecks out. He just, that was his job. He's a steward over his master's estate and stuff. And this is what's going on. This is what the word means. And so, God is your master. Be good stewards of his stuff particularly of the paychecks, of the gifts, of the graces that He wants to distribute to that other person through your gift there. He says, be good stewards of that manifold grace. So, let's, let's think then a little bit about the gifts of the Spirit for a moment. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. What do we do? What do we think about these? In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes, and he's never met these, the church here in the city of Rome yet. He wants to, and he writes, beginning at verse 11, For I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift 
to strengthen you. Now stop. Paul does not mean that I may lay my hands on you and then you'll get a gift to use to others. He means I have gifts and I want God to work through me with those gifts to strengthen you. I've longed to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So I think it rock bottom where you start, and we're going to see this in the context of 1 Peter 4, is this. The gifts which every Christian has are bottom line for the purpose of encouraging other believers in their faith in Jesus. Hebrews 4. Encourage. Why do we need that? Because if you understand Christianity, you're in a war. You're in a battle. And it gets bloody and it gets brutal. Take care. And this is, and this is a test right now of whether you believe this is speaking to you. Take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. It, if, if that doesn't ring a bell, like I see this here, and says, for me, Joe LeMaysol, to that extent, we are intoxicated with the world. Okay, so then that's when he comes in and says, but what do you do, church? Encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may seem to have come short of it. For we, as he said, there's a perfect verb in there. It's a perfect tense verb. I'm sorry, I'm just doing this from my memory. But we have become, there it is, partakers of Christ. It's true if we endure to the end. Okay, that's Christianity. And part of that encouragement is God's giftings in each other in the local body that He uses along this way of sanctification. The key to finding our particular spiritual gifts is 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. Or it's in Peter saying the same thing. Above all, love. Cover sins. Be hospitable. Don't grumble about it. And use your gifts for the sake of others. It comes out of love. The key to finding your gifts is not to go take a psychological spiritual gift mix test. And see if you can pigeonhole yourself and say, okay, I got that gift and I got that gift. You don't need to be able, I'm not saying you can't, and many of us can label gifts to, that's a strong one, that's kind of weak, but you know, whatever. But you can do that, but you don't need to be able to have a label to actually be operating in those gifts. Some of you might think, I don't know if I have a spiritual gift at all, if I've ever used one. If you're a Christian, trust me, you have. And they have been used. And you've never been able to label it. 
But the point is, God used it. And He uses you. Because you are made a particular way. You have a particular talent, a particular gift, a particular sensitivity, a particular thing that just blesses people in an extraordinary way than other people do that. You don't need to necessarily say, okay, what are my gift mix? Okay, I'm prophecy, I'm I'm teacher, I'm a gift of help, I'm a gift of of servant, or serving and, and doing, and not necessarily. The key is to know that gifts, whatever they may be, are meant to build up the faith in Jesus Christ of others. So just live life. And as we live it, ask yourself, I see that person seems like they're in pain now. Pray, God, what... Do I have a gift? Is there something I could do that may, may encourage them, may help them? Is it a, a service gift? Is it a doing a thing? Is it a saying a thing? And then, and then go ahead and just do and or say what, what seems best. And, and you may find that person was helped a little bit or a lot. And that, that's okay. It's probably a gift that God has taken in, in, in you and the Holy Spirit just used. If you listened well to her, you felt her pain, and, and, it, and it comes back to you that that day you spent, that hour you spent, that interaction you spent was really a blessing to her and her faith in Christ. Maybe you have a gift of empathy. I did that on purpose because I don't see that listed. So you can call them whatever you want. You have a gift to feel the pain of others. Use it. Okay. You're the person that you find that, hmm, you like to have the lonely people over. The people that don't know how to do social interaction real well. So other people don't feel comfortable because they don't, they don't know how to talk and it's hard to have. But you're that person. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality or the gift of mercy or whatever you want to call that. Praise God. Cultivate it. Use it. It's why you're there. If you feel you should say, and sometimes you just don't even know why. I just, think, I just feel like I really should say this to so-and-so. I think this might be encouraging to them. And you do that. And, and as you look back, over the last year or two years, you realize that happened four or five times or 58 times. And, and people's response was, that was really helpful. Well, maybe you have the gift of prophecy. And we can go on and on. The point is, we don't need to get hung up on being able to name our gifts. The thing to get hung up on is, are we doing what we can do to strengthen encourage the faith of others in the body. Our real, our biggest hurdle concerning the gifts of the Spirit as a Christian is not being able to label them. It is not loving them enough. That's Peter's point. Be sober purpose of prayer 
covers sin. So, you're free. Yes, life happens, but you're free. And use your gifts to bless other people whose sin you just had to cover. The issue with gifts, as Peter says, is above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So just, you wake up in the morning. I don't know, I don't know what my gift mix is. You wake up and you pray and you read and you get your soul happy in God and you say, God, at the end of the day, at the workplace or over here and then especially in the local church, at church on a Sunday or I'm going to go to this group or I'm going to have lunch with that person. God, may it be that at the end of the day my life was used as a vessel of you for the sake of that other person. That's the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. See, if we're driven by love, you don't have to worry. The Holy Spirit will use us to bless other people. And you want to put names on those gifts? Terrific. Okay. But He will not let that go undone. But remember the key is love. Let me, let me tell a story. Because the thing that is implicit throughout this passage, as we've already seen, is if you don't ever want to be hurt in life, just don't ever get known. Don't ever be connected with people in a real way. Don't ever get married. Don't have children. Okay. I, I remember some of you, a couple of you might have been there probably six years ago, seven years ago, at a home group. Someone new started coming to church. And I remember, and I, and I, and I felt her pain. And in that group, as she was opening up, because of past church life, she, she said, I'm just really scared being here because... I'm afraid to be hurt again. And those of you there, you, you know, I said, and I, I, with dead honesty, if you continue to pursue Christ and you're going to pursue Christ even in the context of sitting around in a living room once a week and people sharing their lives in the context of the gospel, and I promise you one thing. Do that long enough, you will be hurt. This is the assumption of life. And God is sovereign over it. So, obey the Word and love others. And cover their sin. And say, God, use me. The structure here. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7. Let me just put it all together of what we've seen. Is that the gospel, the truth of the gospel, promises come. Particularly here, the second coming of Christ. It is a reality. Therefore, let it sober your thinking. 
your heart, your life up so that you will be drawn more desperately to commune with God and get filled with Him and deal with your own sin so that from that fountain you can earnestly love others expressed through your giftings. So in other words, a spiritual gift It's an expression of faith in Jesus, of those who are born again, for the purpose of strengthening the faith towards that other person. Help them go to God. That's what a spiritual gift is. Whatever those things may be, whether it's cooking food or preaching, whatever they may be, that's a spiritual gift. And it's important to say it that way because that keeps us from simply equating spiritual gifts with natural abilities. What I mean by that is this. Unbelievers, who, in my opinion, when we talk about this term, spiritual gifts, that comes in the New Testament. Unbelievers are not able to have a spiritual gift. Now, what do I mean? Well, there are unbelievers who may become believers, but there are unbelievers right now in the world who have unbelievably strong abilities like teaching, communicating, music, singing, administration, managing, Listening skills, serving, hospitality, go on and on. They're better than you. And every one of those gifts in every unbeliever on this planet right now is a gift from God. But they're not spiritual gifts. Because biblically, these would not be called spiritual gifts because they are not expressions birthed by the Holy Spirit of faith in Christ for the purpose of building up others towards Christ. Okay? Now, in verse 11, as we come, try to come to a close, he goes on to just give just a, and a quick, quick two, two examples of Faith being used. There's God's varied grace, and it comes out, and when you see the end here, it comes out for a purpose, an ultimate goal. So he uses this example of gifts being distributed either through word oriented gifts or service action oriented gifts. Quote, verse 11 Whoever speaks, let him do so. That's what he means. As one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So he's saying, first, he says, if you have a speaking gift... Maybe it's prophecy. Here's one I can't see in the New Testament, but I think it's a gift. 
counseling, teaching. Now, I think in particular Peter does have in his mind preaching and teaching. And he says, is that a gift? He says, when you use it, you better do so with the seriousness of purpose of one who is speaking the oracles of God. One who is representing God's very Word. I take that heavily. Here's how I unfold that in my life. God has spoken once and for all close of the New Testament canon. He has spoken in the text of Scripture. Now, part of, now, here's the thing. That text of Scripture is what tells us God places human beings. He places gifts Within the church. Now, for what? It's what, I, it's what I think it means. It's speaking the oracles of God. It's, in other words, to deal honestly with Holy Scripture. With what is there in the text. To do so with seriousness as one who is endeavoring to unfold what God has said in Scripture. Well, then, then why have preaching at all? Because God ordained it. It's not the same as just reading. It is different, and it's a Holy Spirit gift. It is taking what is there in the pages and the Word and reading and seeing and trying to get to the meaning and say, help the church see it and to proclaim it. And therefore, that gift has to do also with the manner in which it's delivered. And to preach on hell while you're giggling would be failing to do what Peter said. Speaking to You don't do that. There is a... God places gifts. Therefore, there's a human being and they're all unique. And they're to carry the Word and unfold the Word and let the Word written be preeminent but coming through a gift that is alive in front of us. Phillips Brooks over a hundred years ago therefore defined preaching this way. Preaching, he says, quote, is truth mediated through personality. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher of the 20th century, London, England, defined preaching as logic on fire. So, Peter's point is here. One who speaks, let him do so, is one who speaks the oracles of God. Who never takes the word, therefore, in that office lightly. 
And I think that's why Jesus is brother. James wrote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Then Peter goes on. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You serve. What does that mean? Whatever you are doing, serving the body. Whatever you're doing, he says though, don't do it. Be careful of doing it in your own strength. Let him do it by the strength that God supplies. Because when we start to fail to do that vertical thing by the strength that God supplies, but I'm just sweeping, go vertical, that God supplies. To the extent we fail to do that, is to the extent that that ceases to be a gift because now it's slowly starting to come from a different motive other than the joy overflowing that we get in God in serving within the church. But instead, it starts to become a drudgery or an avenue to boast. Look at me. Look at what I did. Praise me. Praise me. And that's the ultimate purpose of the gifts. The opposite of that. It's right there in the text. No matter what gift and how strongly or little on any given day, God has mercifully used you to impart grace in whatever means, in whatever way, to another. It is in order to demonstrate His greatness, not yours. The glory of God, the goal of your gifts being expressed through loving others out of your sober prayer life is that God might get the glory. I end with a quote. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever. Amen. So now as we sing, and as you receive the cup, and you receive the bread, let us be worshipful. Let us be going vertical. Let us say, yes, Lord, help me see and be encouraged by this. God, help me see how you have actually used me. I haven't thought about that. And God, may you use gifts in me more so for the faith, the sake of love in the body of Christ.